0: Section 39 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ava'i, in May 2015. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6. By various authors, Section Thirty Nine, Selected Excerpts from Curiosities of Natural History by Francis Trevelyan Buckland. Francis Trevelyan Buckland, eighteen twenty-six to eighteen eighty. Certainly, among the most useful of writers are the popularizers of science. Those who can describe in readable, picturesque fashion those wonders and innumerable inhabitants of the world, which the driest dusts discover, but which are apt to escape the attention of idlers or of the busy workers in other fields. Sometimes, not often, the same man unites the capacities of a patient and accurate investigator and of an accomplished narrator. To such men the field of enjoyment is boundless, as is the opportunity to promote the enjoyment of others. One of these two-sided men was Francis Trevelyan Buckland, popularly known as Frank Buckland, and so called in some of his books. His father, William Buckland, at the time of the son's birth Canon of Christ College, Oxford, and subsequently Dean of Westminster, was the well-known geologist as the father's life was devoted to the study of the inorganic, so that of the son was absorbed in the investigation of the organic world. He never tired of watching the habits of living creatures of all kind. He lived, as it were, in a menagerie, and it is related that his numerous callers were accustomed to the most familiar and impertinent demonstrations on the part of his monkeys and various other pets. He was an expert salmon fisher and his actual speciality was fishes, but he could not have these about him so conveniently as some other forms of life and he extended his studies and specimens widely beyond ichthyology. Buckland was born December seventeenth eighteen twenty six and died December nineteenth eighteen eighty. Brought up in a scientific atmosphere, he was all his life interested in the same subjects. Educated as a physician and surgeon, and distinguished for his anatomical skill, his training fitted him for the careful investigation which is necessary on the part of the biologist. He was fortunate, too, in receiving, in early middle life, the government appointment of Inspector of Salmon Fisheries, and so being enabled to devote himself wholly to his favorite pursuits. In this position he was unwearied in his efforts to develop pisci-culture and to improve the apparatus used by the fishermen, interesting himself also in the condition of themselves and their families. He was always writing. He was a very frequent contributor to The Field, from its foundation in 1856, and subsequently to Land and Water, a periodical which he started in 1866, and to other periodicals. He published a number of volumes, made up in great part from his contributions to periodicals, most of them of a popular character and full of interesting information. Among those which are best known are the Curiosities of Natural History, 1857-72, through 72, the Logbook of a Fisherman and Geologist, 1875, A Natural History of British Fishes, 1881, and notes and jottings from animal life, which was not issued until 1882, though the material was selected by himself. Buckland was of a jovial disposition, and always sure to see the humorous side of the facts which were presented to him, and in his social life he was extremely unconventional and inclined to merry pranks. His books are as delightful as was their writer. They are records of accurate, useful, eye-opening details as to fauna, all the world over. They are written with a brisk, sincere informality that suggests the lively talker rather than the writer. He takes us a-walking in green lanes and woods, and a-wading in brooks and still pools, not drawing us into a classroom or a study. He enters into the heart and life of creatures, and shows us how we should do the same. A lively humor is in all his popular pages. He instructs while smiling, and he is a savant while a light-hearted friend. Few English naturalists are as genial, not even white of Selborne, and few as wide in didactics. To know him is a profit indeed, but just as surely a pleasure. A Hunt in a Horse Pond From Curiosities of Natural History well let us have a look at the pond world choose a dry place at the side and fix our eyes steadily upon the dirty water what shall we see nothing at first but wait a minute or two a little round black knob appears in the middle gradually it rises higher and higher till at last you can make out the frog's head with his great eyes staring hard at you like the eyes of the frog in the woodcut facing Aesop's fable of the frog and the bull. Not a bit of his body do you see. He is much too cunning for that. He does not know who or what you are. You may be a heron, his mortal enemy, for aught he knows. You move your arm. He thinks it is the heron's bill coming. Down he goes again. And you see him not. A few seconds he regains courage and reappears, having probably communicated the intelligence to the other frogs for many big heads and many big eyes appear in all parts of the pond, looking like so many hippopotami on a small scale. Soon a conversational work, work, work begins. You don't understand it. Luckily, perhaps, as from the swelling in their throats it is evident that the colony is outraged by the intrusion, and the remarks passing are not complimentary to the intruder. These frogs are all respectable, grown-up, well-to-do frogs, and they have in this pond duly deposited their spawn, and then hard-hearted creatures left it to its fate. It has, however, taken care of itself, and is now hatched, at least that part of it which has escaped the hands of the gipsies who not unfrequently prescribe baths of this natural jelly for rheumatism in some places from their making this peculiar noise frogs have been called dutch nightingales in scotland too they have a curious name paddock or paddock but there is poetical authority for it the water snake whom fish and paddocks feed With staring scales lies poisoned. Dryden Returning from the University of Gießen, I brought with me about a dozen green tree-frogs, which I had caught in the woods near the town. The Germans call them laubfrosch, or leaf-frog. They are most difficult things to find, on account of their colors so much resembling the leaves on which they live. I have frequently heard one singing in a small bush, and though I have searched carefully, have not been able to find him. The only way is to remain quite quiet till he again begins his song. After much ambush work, at length I collected a dozen frogs and put them in a bottle. I started at night on my homeward journey by the diligence, and I put the bottle containing the frogs into the pocket inside the diligence. My fellow passengers were sleepy, old, smoke-dried Germans. Very little conversation took place, and after the first mile everyone settled himself to sleep, and soon all were snoring. I suddenly awoke with a start, and found all the sleepers had been roused at the same moment. On their sleepy faces were depicted fear and anger. What had woke us all up so suddenly? The morning was just breaking— and my frogs though in the dark pocket of the coach had found it out and with one accord all twelve of them had begun their morning song as if at a given signal they one and all of them began to croak as loud as ever they could the noise their united concert made seemed in the closed compartment of the coach quite deafening well might the germans look angry they wanted to throw the frogs bottle and all out of the window But i gave the bottle a good shaking and made the frogs keep quiet the germans all went to sleep again but i was obliged to remain awake to shake the frogs when they began to croak it was lucky that i did so for they tried to begin their concert again two or three times these frogs came safely to oxford and the day after their arrival a stupid housemaid took off the top of the bottle to see what was inside one of the frogs croaked at that instant and so frightened her that she dared not put the cover on again they all got loose in the garden where i believe the ducks ate them for i never heard or saw them again on rats from curiosities of natural history on one occasion when a boy i recollect secretly borrowing an old-fashioned flint gun from the bird-keeper of the farm to which i had been invited i ensconced myself behind the door of the pigsty determined to make a victim of one of the many rats that were accustomed to disport themselves among the straw that formed the bed of the farmer's pet bacon pigs in a few minutes out came an old patriarchal looking rat who having taken a careful survey quietly began to feed. After a long aim—bang! went the gun—I fell backwards, knocked down by the recoil of the rusty old piece of artillery. I did not remain prone long, for I was soon roused by the most unearthly squeaks and a dreadful noise as of an infuriated animal madly rushing round and round the sty. Ye gods, what had I done?— i had not surely like the tailor in the old song of the carrion crow shot and missed my mark and shot the old sow right bang through the heart but i had nearly performed a similar sportsmanlike feat there was poor piggy the blood flowing in streamlets from several small punctures in that part of his body destined at no very distant period to become ham in vain attempting, by dismal cries and by energetic waggings of its curly tail, to appease the pain of the charge of small shot, which had so unceremoniously awakened him from his porcine dreams of oatmeal and boiled potatoes. But where was the rat? He had disappeared unhurt. The buttocks of the unfortunate pig, the rightful owner of the premises, had received the charge of shot intended to destroy the daring intruder. To appease Piggy's wrath I gave him a bucketful of food from the hog-tub, and while he was thus consoling his inward self, wiped off the blood from the wounded parts, and saying nothing about it to anybody. No doubt before this time some frugal housewife has been puzzled and astonished at the unwonted appearance of a charge of small shot in the centre of the breakfast-ham which she procured from Squire Moorland of Sheepstead, Burke's. Rats are very fond of warmth, and will remain coiled up for hours in any snug retreat, where they can find this very necessary element of their existence. The following anecdote well illustrates this point. My late father, when fellow of Corpus College, Oxford, many years ago, on arriving at his rooms late one night found that a rat was running about among the books and geological specimens, behind the sofa, under the fender, and poking his nose into every hiding-place he could find. Being studiously inclined and wishing to set to work at his books, he pursued them, armed with the poker in one hand and a large dictionary, big enough to crush any rat in the other, but in vain. Mr. Rat was not to be caught— particularly when such arma scolastica were used no sooner had the studies recommenced than the rat resumed his gambols squeaking and rushing about the room like a mad creature the battle was renewed and continued at intervals to the destruction of all studies till quite a late hour at night when the pursuer angry and wearied retired to his adjoining bedroom Though he listened attentively, he heard no more of the enemy and soon fell asleep. In the morning, he was astonished to find something warm lying on his chest. Carefully lifting up the bedclothes, he discovered his tormentor of the preceding night quietly and snugly ensconced in a fold in the blanket and taking advantage of the bodily warmth of his two-legged adversary. These two lay looking daggers at each other for some minutes the one unwilling to leave his warm berth the other afraid to put his hand out from under the protection of the cover lid, particularly as the stranger's aspect was anything but friendly his little sharp teeth and fierce little black eyes seeming to say "Pause off from me if you please at length remembering the maxim that discretion is the better part of valor the truth of which i imagine rats understand as well as most creatures he made a sudden jump off the bed, scuttled away into the next room, and was never seen or heard of afterwards. Rats are not selfish animals. Having found out where the feast is stored, they will kindly communicate the intelligence to their friends and neighbors. The following anecdote will confirm this fact. A certain worthy old lady named Mrs. Okey. Who resided at axminster several years ago made a cask of sweet wine for which she was celebrated and carefully placed it on a shelf in the cellar the second night after this event she was frightened almost to death by a strange unaccountable noise in the said cellar the household was called up and a search made but nothing was found to clear up the mystery the next night as soon as the lights were extinguished and the house quiet this dreadful noise was heard again this time it was most alarming a sound of squeaking crying knocking pattering feet then a dull scratching sound with many other such ghostly noises which continued throughout the life night the old lady lay in bed with the candle alight pale and sleepless with fright anon muttering her prayers anon determining to fire off the rusty old blunderbuss that hung over the chimney-piece at last the morning broke and the cock began to crow now thought she the ghosts must disappear to her infinite relief the noise really did cease and the poor frightened dame adjusted her nightcap and fell asleep great preparations had she made for the next night farm servants armed with pitchforks slept in the house the maids took the family dinner-bell and the thinder-box into their rooms. The big dog was tied to the hall-table. Then the dame retired to her room, not to sleep, but to sit up in the armchair by the fire, keeping a drowsy guard over the neighbor's loaded horse-pistols, of which she was almost as much afraid as she was of the ghost in the cellar. Sure enough, her warlike preparations had succeeded, the ghost was certainly frightened. Not a noise, not a sound, except the heavy snoring of the bumpkins and the rattling of the dog's chain in the hall, could be heard. She had gained a complete victory. The ghost was never heard again on the premises, and the whole affair was soon forgotten. Some weeks afterward, some friends dropped in to take a cup of tea and talk over the last piece of gossip. Among other things, the wine was mentioned, and the maid sent to get some from the cellar. She soon returned, and, gasping for breath, rushed into the room, exclaiming, "'Tis all gone, ma'am!' and sure enough it was all gone. "'The ghost has taken it!' Not a drop was left, only the empty cask remained, the side was half eaten away, and marks of sharp teeth were visible round the ragged margins of the newly made bungholes. This discovery fully accounted for the noise the ghost had made, which caused so much alarm— the aboriginal rats in the dame's cellar had found out the wine and communicated the joyful news to all the other rats in the parish they had assembled there to enjoy the fun and get very tipsy which judging from the noise they made they certainly did on this treasured cask of wine being quite a family party they had finished it in two nights and having got all they could like wise rats they returned to their respective homes perfectly unconscious that their merry-making had nearly been the death of the rightful owner and founder of the feast they had first gnawed out the cork and got as much as they could they soon found that the more they drank the lower the wine became perseverance is the motto of the rat so they set to work and ate away the wood to the level of the wine again this they continued till they had emptied the cask They must then have got into it and licked up the last drains, for another and less agreeable smell was substituted for that of wine. I may add that this cask, with the side gone and the marks of the rat's teeth, is still in my possession. Snakes and their Poison From Curiosities of Natural History be it known to any person to whose lot it should fall to rescue a person from the crushing folds of a boa constrictor that it is no use pulling and hauling at the centre of the brute's body catch hold of the tip of his tail he then can be easily unwound he cannot help himself he must come off again if you wish to kill a snake it is no use hitting and trying to crush his head the bones of the head are composed of the densest material affording effectual protection to the brain underneath a wise provision for the animal's preservation for were his skull brittle his habit of crawling on the ground would render it very liable to be fractured the spinal cord runs down the entire length of the body this being wounded the animal is disabled or killed in stanter strike therefore his tail and not his head for at his tail the spinal cord is but thinly covered with bone, and suffers readily from injury. This practice is applicable to eels. If you want to kill an eel, it is not much use belaboring his head. Strike, however, his tail two or three times against any hard substance, and he is quickly dead. About four years ago, I myself, in person, had painful experience of the awful effects of snakes' poison. I have received a dose of the cobra's poison into my system—luckily a minute dose, or I should not have survived it. The accident happened in a very curious way. I was poisoned by the snake, but not bitten by him. I got the poison second-hand. Anxious to witness the effects of the poison of the cobra upon a rat, I took up a couple in a bag, alive to a certain cobra. I took one rat out of the bag and put him into the cage with the snake. The cobra was coiled up among the stones in the center of the cage, apparently asleep. When he heard the noise of the rat falling into the cage, he just looked up and put out his tongue, he sang at the same time. The rat got in a corner and began washing himself, keeping one eye on the snake, whose appearance he evidently did not half like. Presently the rat ran across the snake's body, and in an instant the latter assumed his fighting attitude. As the rat passed the snake, he made a dart, but missing his aim, hit his nose a pretty hard blow against the side of the cage. This accident seemed to anger him, for he spread out his crest and waved it to and fro in the beautiful manner peculiar to his kind. The rat became alarmed and ran near him again. Again Cobra made a dart and bit him, but did not, I think, inject any poison into him, the rat being so very active, at least no symptoms of poisoning were shown. The bite nevertheless aroused the ire of the rat, for he gathered himself for a spring, and, measuring his distance, sprang right onto the neck of the cobra, who was waving about in front of him. This plucky rat, determined to die hard, gave the cobra two or three severe bites in the neck, the snake keeping his body erect all this time, and endeavoring to turn his head round so as to bite the rat, who was clinging on like the old man in Sintbad the Sailor. Soon, however, Cobra changed his tactics. Tired, possibly, with sustaining the weight of the rat, he lowered his head, and the rat, finding himself again on terra firma, tried to run away. Not so, for the snake, collecting all his force, brought down his erected poison fangs, making his head tell by its weight in giving vigor to the blow, right onto the body of the rat. This poor beast now seemed to know that the fight was over, and that he was conquered. He retired to a corner of the cage, and began panting violently, endeavoring at the same time to steady his failing strength with his feet. His eyes were widely dilated and his mouth open as if gasping for breath. The cobra stood erect over him, hissing and putting out his tongue as if conscious of victory. In about three minutes the rat fell quietly on his side and expired. The cobra then moved off and took no further notice of his defunct enemy. About ten minutes afterward the rat was hooked out of the cage for me to examine. No external wound could I see anywhere, so I took out my knife and began taking the skin off the rat. I soon discovered two very minute punctures, like small needle-holes in the side of the rat, where the fangs of the snake had entered. The parts between the skin and the flesh, and the flesh itself, appeared as though affected with mortification, even though the wound had not been inflicted above a quarter of an hour, if so much anxious to see if the skin itself was affected i scraped away the parts on it with my finger-nail finding nothing but the punctures i threw the rat away and put the knife and skin in my pocket and started to go away i had not walked a hundred yards before all of a sudden i felt just as if somebody had come behind me and struck me a severe blow on the head and neck and at the same time I experienced a most acute pain and sense of oppression at the chest, as though a hot iron had been run in and a hundredweight put on the top of it. I knew instantly, from what I had read, that I was poisoned. I said as much to my friend, a most intelligent gentleman, who happened to be with me, and told him if I fell to give me brandy and eau de luce, words which he kept repeating in case he might forget them. At the same time, I enjoined him to keep me going, and not on any account to allow me to lie down. I then forgot everything for several minutes, and my friend tells me I rolled about as if very faint and weak. He also informs me that the first thing I did was to fall against him, asking if I looked seedy. He most wisely answered, No, you look very well. I don't think he thought so, for his own face was as white as a ghost. I recollect this much. He tells me my face was of a greenish-yellow color. After walking, or rather staggering along for some minutes, I gradually recovered my senses and steered for the nearest chemist's shop. Rushing in, I asked for de Luce, Of course he had none, but my eye caught the words Spirit, Amon, ko, or hartshorn on a bottle i reached it down myself and pouring a large quantity into a tumbler with a little water both of which articles i found on a soda-water stand in the shop drank it off though it burned my mouth and lips very much instantly i felt relief from the pain at the chest and head the chemist stood aghast and on my telling him what was the matter recommended a warm bath if i had then followed his advice these words would never have been placed on record after a second draught at the hartshorn bottle i proceeded on my way feeling very stupid and confused on arriving at my friend's residence close by he kindly procured me a bottle of brandy of which i drank four large wine-glasses one after the other but did not feel the least tipsy after the operation feeling nearly well i started on my way home and then for the first time perceived a most acute pain under the nail of the left thumb. This pain also ran up the arm. I set to work to suck the wound, and then found out how the poison had got into the system. About an hour before I examined the dead red, I had been cleaning the nail with a penknife, and had slightly separated the nail from the skin beneath. Into this little crack the poison had got when I was scraping the rat's skin to examine the wound. How virulent, therefore, must the poison of the cobra be! It had already been circulating in the body of the rat from which I had imbibed it second-hand. My Monkey Jacko From Curiosities of Natural History After some considerable amount of bargaining, in which amusing, sometimes animated, not to say exciting exhibition of talent, Englishmen generally get worsted by the Frenchmen, as was the case in the present instance, Jacko became transferred, chain, tail and all, to his new English master. Having arrived at the hotel, it became a question as to what was become of Jacko while his master was absent from home a little closet opening into the wall of the bedroom offered itself as a temporary prison. Jacko was tied up securely—alas, how vain are the thoughts of man—to one of the row of pegs that were fastened against the wall. As the door closed on him, his wicked eyes seemed to say, I'll do some mischief now. And sure enough he did, for when I came back to release him, like Aeneas— Obstupni come et vox fancibus heit aghast, astonished, and struck dumb with fear, I stood like bristled, rose my stiffened hair, Dryden, the walls that but half an hour previously were covered with a finely ornamented paper now stood out in the bold nakedness of lath and plaster. The relics on the floor showed that the little wretch's fingers had by no means been idle. The pegs were all loosened, the individual peg to which his chain had been fastened, torn completely from its socket, that the destroyer's movement might not be impeded, and an unfortunate garment that happened to be hung up in the closet was torn to a thousand shreds. If ever Jack Shepherd had a successor, it was this monkey— if he had tied the torn bits of petticoat together and tried to make his escape from the window i don't think i should have been much surprised it was after jacko's misdeeds quite evident that he must no longer be allowed full liberty and a lawyer's blue bag such as may be frequently seen in the dreaded neighbourhood of the court of chancery filled however more frequently with papers and parchment than with monkeys was provided for him and this receptacle, which some hay placed at the bottom for a bed, became his new abode. It was a movable home, and therein lay the advantage, for when the strings of it were tied there was no mode of escape. He could not get his hands through the aperture at the end to unfasten them, the bag was too strong for him to bite his way through, and his ineffectual efforts to get out, only had the effect of making the bag roll along the floor, and occasionally make a jump up into the air, forming altogether an exhibition which, if advertised in the present day of wonders as Le Bag Vivant, would attract crowds of delighted and admiring citizens. In the bag aforesaid, he travelled as far as Southampton on his road to town. While taking the ticket at the railway station, Jacko, who must needs see everything that was going on, suddenly poked his head out of the bag, and gave a malicious grin at the ticket-giver. This much frightened the poor man, but with great presence of mind, quite astonishing under the circumstances, he retaliated the insult. "'Sir, that's a dog. You must pay for it accordingly.' in vain was the monkey made to come out of the bag and exhibit his whole person in vain were arguments in full accordance with the views of cuvier and owen urged eagerly vehemently and without hesitation for the train was on the point of starting to prove that the animal in question was not a dog but a monkey a dog it was in the peculiar views of the official and three and sixpence was paid thinking to carry the joke further There were just a few minutes to spare. I took out from my pocket a live tortoise I happened to have with me, and, showing it, said, What must I pay for this, as you charge for all animals? The employee adjusted his specs, withdrew from the desk to consult with his superior, then, returning, gave the verdict with a grave but determined manner. No charge for them, sir. Them be insects.' End of section 39